And I think the lesson that I think will get learned is that less may be more. And then if you're sponsoring the player, you know, the one or two marketable players, and so are a bunch of other brands, good luck in fans recalling that that player is endorsing that brand, right? You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you join us again this week. On today's show, we have Dr. Kirk Wakefield, Chief Research Officer at Wakefield Research Partners. Kirk has got a great experience uh, both in the academic and the commercial realm. Kirk is the Edwin W. Streetman Professor of Retail Marketing at Baylor University here in Texas, where he's the Executive Director of the Sports Strategy and Sales, or S3, program. Kirk is also the author of the book Team Sports Marketing and the founder of Wakefield Research Partners, a research firm measuring partnership and brand impact for over 20 pro teams. Kirk's scholarly works appears in the Journal of Marketing, the Journal of Consumer Research, and the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science, to name a few, and he's also a regular contributor to Sports Money on Forbes. So, as I said, great match between that academic rigor and then also the commercial experience advising, advising some of the top teams uh, across the US, across North America, kind of, I think they've got teams across every single major league here, uh, and really looking at what does sponsorship do for them? What What is actually happening with these brands that are sponsoring and and underwriting all of the sports that we love. Because obviously at the end of the day, someone's got to pay the bill. And as we know that apart from broadcast rights, which is also linked to sponsorship, it's it's the sponsors, it's the brands that are, that are getting involved in sports that really are the ones that, yeah, making it all happen. So what can we actually learn from that? What actually happens when a brand sponsors a team? How does that actually impact how fans think, feel, what they do? And starting with a fundamental question, does it actually work? I'll leave the answer for that up to Kirk. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Thomas Loams from Sports Tech World Series. If you'd like to look at other episodes, you can go back to sportstechworldseries.com forward slash podcast. Look through all our, uh, our previous episodes there, available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening now. You can also sign up for our newsletter, sportstechworldseries.com forward slash newsletter. That's a weekly newsletter on Thursdays. Hit your inbox, give you everything you need to know about what's happening in the industry. Uh, really digestible format, and we have some great um, deep dives included in that. So if you want to go a, a bit more in-depth with a particular topic, there's always going to be one uh, included in that. That's all from me for now. If you have any questions um, or want to learn more about what we do at Sports Tech World Series, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, but over to Kirk. Dr. Kirk Wakefield, Chief Research Officer at Wakefield Research Partners. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Great to have you on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So first up is a bit of context. Um, can you outline what you do at Wakefield Research Partners, so some of the clients you work with and, and the work you do for them? Sure. Uh, we measure the sponsorship impact uh, for brands that are associated with uh, mostly NFL teams, but also NHL and NBA teams and some um, venues and properties. And we measure what happens really after <laughs> Uh, you know, sponsors do everything they can with their assets and we measure those assets and then what fans think, feel, or do because of the sponsorship. Yeah. So how do you measure a successful brand sponsorship in sports? Well, if fans can't recall who the sponsor is, that would be your first clue (laughs) that it's not working well. So we measure the uh, number of fans represented by the a scientific sample, which is extremely important. Uh, not everyone pays as close attention to this as we do, but step number one, any 
survey, any research is identifying the population and then scientifically sampling you know, that population so that we represent all season ticket holders who, by the way, don't always have the best uh, attitudes or the best opinions um, for certain reasons. Um, and then every single game uh, ticket buyer and all other registered users, which are extremely important because you think about uh, any sponsor for like Austin FC, just down the road from you, it's one of our partners. Um, and you don't have Yeti on the jersey uh, or some of the other partners just trying to reach the fans who will attend the match. That would be silly to pay serious money to reach a few hundred thousand. They're trying to reach, you know, the hundreds of thousands, millions who are, you know, reached by their digital and social and everything else. Yeah. So it's not just the people that are that are in the um, in the stands. It's the actual global audience. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. think about that. For I was talking with somebody from Spain, who apparently uh, uh, FC Barca has opened a New York office to sell sponsorships for Barca to reach you know the Americas, and they have 400 million fans. So no one's paying to reach the hundred thousand fans that come every match at Barca just for that i'd be silly right for again you could potentially be reaching up to 400 million so you need to measure that yeah and what's um you mentioned at the beginning impact so how does impact on brand equity um differ from i guess viewership so as opposed to something that's talked about <laughs> just oh, yeah yeah it makes me think um you know so the old, uh, you know, watch, listen, or attend. I can watch a match or a game. I can listen, maybe, although listening is quite different from watching. I listen on radio. That means I probably understand the game. Watching, I could be just doing that with my, you know, friend or whatever and not even care. And I could do the same with attend. So you can watch an ad and not like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, think of any number of brands you see on there and probably curse the TV maybe uh, or say that's stupid, that's I hate that brand. So yeah. just exposure tells you only that, right? How many were reached? And so what we do is find out once you're reached, does the passion for that team and their players, does it transfer to the brand, which um, it's interesting. Um, so that does work. It's psychology. It, it, if I love whatever team, I just published those series of articles in Forbes on home team. Uh, fans and NBA, NHL, and NBA, uh, Major League Baseball. And, you know, if I'm a fan of Texas Rangers or whatever, frankly, it doesn't even matter if they're on a 12-game losing streak, which they are. Um, you know, I still will – my passion for baseball, my passion for Major League Baseball and the team, um, you know, it still works. And I think what stuns me – and it always works, by the way, uh, because of the psychology of pairing that thing I love with – you know, the brands. Um, I think this industry, um, some or too many, I would say, in this industry still have kind of a fear that what we're doing doesn't really work. And so we've got to pump up the numbers. And so we give them these huge social numbers and huge digital and, you know, TV ratings and go, see, we reached these millions of people. And then some, not as many anymore, but some are less uh, likely or uh, aren't necessarily wanting to get into what the impact is, but the impact works. That's why we do it. You know, so uh, yeah, yeah, that's the difference. 
we had uh, Dr. Tom Waller, who's uh, chief science officer at Lululemon. So one of the biggest athletes yep. I think, behind uh, Nike only in terms of, of market capitalization. Um, and he had the phrase brand done well as an extension of oneself. And if you think about a sports team, it's an extension of yourself. It's, it's right. people get tattoos of their favorite um, teams, you know, that's essentially a, a logo. Um, but people aren't getting, you know, the, the Ford or the Toyota badge tattooed on themselves. Um, but you can still borrow from that, that fan affinity and the passion um, right. and connect through. So it's obviously, um, as you said, it does work, but how you measure that. And, and especially in the, um, I was moving to more of the digital field, just saying I got this many views on my, on my ad or whatever. It could be a obscure part of the internet or place next to content that you don't actually associate, want to associate with your brand is, is something else that's interesting there. So coming back to what you were talking about, measuring this, the metrics and understanding um, the impact versus just my ad was on the advertising hoarding for three seconds or whatever it is. What are some of the basic fundamental mistakes that you see when brands are measuring their sponsorship impact? Yeah, I mean, frankly, I don't see that many errors on the brand side. <laughs> um, in fact, we fancy ourselves as uh, you know experts on what brands want, and we're helping teams see that. The teams will try and measure sponsorship impact to then sell sponsorships, and and they get it wrong. So, yeah, yeah. I guess the, the, revising the question: yeah. um, Where are the mistakes made, and what are the mistakes? Yeah, um, and again, I don't know how many are intentional. I think it's kind of been a function of how the sports industry as uh, also a professor at Baylor and having taught sports marketing and sports sales for the last 20 plus years. Um, you know, we often say that professional sports is about 10 years behind corporate marketing and collegiate sports is about 10 years behind pro. <laughs> uh, it seems like, although again, shifting dramatically in the last few years, um, and I say that's shipping even more so in the uh, collegiate space. But anyway, uh, so um, maybe not intentional, but a function of not putting monies um, into the business side of it as much as they do on the pitch, or on the court or field, perhaps. And so the consequence, um, teams are often understaffed. I mean, if you talk, you go very many. I don't think anybody's saying, wow, we have you know, totally enough people to do everything we need to do. No, they're always running around like the proverbial, you know, chicken with his head cut off. They're super busy and they don't have enough people. So as a consequence, when it comes to research, uh, well, in fact, when it comes to database and data management, often you'll find the person in CRM and database and then subsequently often assigned to do the research um, is somebody who might have come out of inside sales might have had a biology degree or political science or who knows what, you know, in other words, not business and not marketing research uh, by any stretch, uh, who had an act for numbers. Um, and somebody said, hey, you're pretty good with Excel. Why don't you come over here into the database side? You're not selling too well. And so then they uh, come over into the database side and maybe they did so well and they just are good at numbers. So then they do that and they move their ways up, up the ranks um, you know, in the uh, business analytics department and plenty smart. Um, but not trained in market research. But then someone says, oh, hey, well, you can handle the market research side and you handle the budgets and everything on analytics, fine. But yet 
they have no training in market research, which is, um, you know, their PhDs in this field, obviously I hold one, so does uh, a couple of others in our organization. Um, so uh, I always compare it to, <laughs> it's kind of like you need to see an MD for something and you're sick. I mean, you could Google it, people do, right? <laughs> WebMD tells me I've got this. So you could, but if you're really sick and you really wanna make sure you're taken care of, you'll go see a, a, an MD, a doctor. You probably aren't gonna wanna see the, the nurse or the physician's assistant, although occasionally that's okay, right? Yeah. Um, but most of what you've got is somebody that's in charge of research that is not trained, no fault of their own. But then often we'll talk with them, oh, we, they'll, we'll hear, well, we take care of this, we do this internally. Yeah, so it's being uh, under-resourced and then um, someone with an analytics background, but not understanding nuances of actually, say, even how to put together a survey or other market research tool. Um, and yet they think they do, right? Because anybody can field one. I mean, there's SurveyMonkey, you can pitch yours out there and you can get numbers back. <laughs> um, so they think they're doing it, but um, I can't tell you how many surveys we've seen that are out there by... Uh, a, some of our competitors in the space that frankly motivated me to get into this. Um, and then others who were just uh, DIY, uh, sending them out. And they are things that if you're teaching a research class, you know, at a university, you know, you would not pass, you know, mm. fail. Um, so has it gotten better after COVID? Is it one of those things that obviously there was um, shutdown in sports, but then also a lot of financial pressure on a lot of the sponsors? to I mean all businesses to, to yeah. pull back on expenses and obviously marketing yeah and yeah. that was part of it so clearly there have been a number of providers in this space that are um, you know akin to what we well not everything we do but or at least in the survey business and research business uh, you know that have been moving along and so the demand is definitely picked up for sure and I think now what um, people are seeing is that the the brands for sure are demanding it. And even if the sponsorship person might be totally behind whatever it is and hasn't cared before, now they do because the CFO is at, at their company is asking for a report. So they want support more than just, oh, that's how many you reach. They wanna know if it's working. Yeah. So uh, we're seeing a lot more brands that are asking for that. Um, I gotta throw in real quickly, uh, which is occasionally I hear teams say, well, no brands have asked us for this. Well, to be fair, they didn't know you could or would provide that data, but they're all tracking the same things that we measure and can do for you, but also do some of it that no one else can do. Mm. So is it one of those things that there's or traditionally less incentive to actually provide hard data because people were concerned that it would show things they didn't want to and kind of basically yeah. saying that if I'm selling a sponsorship package from a team side or a league side um, and I can just say, well, it reaches this many people and I can give you inflated stats and I can kind of go, well, look at this, look at this connection. Um, is it out of concern that maybe there was a little bit of snake oil in the sense of it wasn't really reaching what they wanted and now with a, with something like COVID, and I think um, in our previous discussions, you've mentioned the GFC, you saw a similar thing after that, the global financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crash in the US, um, where businesses had to turn around and go, 
you need to justify this. And also as the evolution of um, data and digital continue, you actually have the means to, to justify this. So is it, is it one of those things that it's kind of this, I guess, a, um, a self-supporting ecosystem in a negative way in the sense yeah. of... That's what it has been. And, no. sponsorship and then it kind of just keeps going. Yeah. Well, and it's easy. So how many eyeballs were there? We all get that. Yeah. Right. And everybody can report there's X million, you know, that were reached by this. Um, or we can do our own surveys and say, oh, look, this is the percentage of fans who recalled your brand as the partner, either unaided or aided recall. That's, you know, been done for, you know, decades or almost century. Um, so fine. Um, but what actually the brand you're wanting to know uh, is the return on the assets. So I, if I spend seven figures on a sponsorship deal, I want to know that those assets that I bought, did they actually work and to what extent did they work? And so, yes, back to the part of your question, um, brands are now demanding to know that um, and they're most satisfied when they get that. They've not been used to getting it, you know, frankly, until we came along. Um, so, uh, so the opportunity is there. So I think back to what I was saying is one of the charts that we show um, now in our uh, pitches is that there are a number of uh, syndicated providers uh, like our friends at Zoom for Hookit or, you know, and our friends at YouGov, uh, you know, or maybe the Rello or uh, MVV, MVP index. You need that data. I mean, you need to know what that reach is for sure. Those are all complementary to what we do. So great, use those. Uh, but if you want to actually know what happened because of all those things, well, then you should measure it. And you also should do it over the course of a contract, right? So if you really are transparent, which there is a growing number, and I'd, I'd say all of our partners in this boat, there's a growing number of transparent minded people who treat partnerships truly like a partnership like you would if a good friend like you lay it all out there let's if it's not working let's make it better uh, if it is working i sure want you to know <laughs> you know so you can um go tell your cfo and cmo you know how it's going so uh, i think that it's shifted the demand is higher and then there's a growing number of new uh, new blood in there who's not the old school glad handing. We don't really need to give them all that kind of data. Yeah, Maybe we were a little fearful if they did. And yeah. by the way, there's no, the fear is unfounded. I mean, it works. I mean, I, somebody asked me the other day, does it ever happen where the uh, partnership measurement comes out poorly? Um, no, I mean, as long as you're fulfilling your uh, part of the, you know, the activation, doing what you uh, contracting to do. No, it works to the extent that they paid for, you know, those assets and so on. Uh, that's consistent. Uh, the only time I've seen it not work, frankly, is when the brand um, has the rights to um, the intellectual property to use the marks and the logo. And then uh, what we refer to as signing a check and dropping the ball. Um, and they don't use the marks of the team to bolster and amplify their message. So brands sometimes drop the ball, but I've not seen too many teams do that. Yeah, yeah. And is that something that um, I mean, kind of a little bit um, tangential, but with name image likeness, is, is it something that you're seeing as college athletics is professionalized um, in a more formal sense? I mean, anyone on the outside looking in um, would see how 
professional it is, essentially. Um, same with, I mean, Baylor McLean Stadium, that's not exactly a, a small small shack. That's a right. with many professional stadiums around the world. Same as here in Austin with, with, um, with Darrell Kay, the UT Stadium, 100,000 people. Um, but as on the kind of athletic side, name, image, likeness, athletes being able to be um, paid for how they represent themselves. Um, do you th- see it's kind of opening a whole other door to this work in terms of measuring that sponsorship? Yeah, for sure. And we've been discussing it internally and in some places externally. Um, and frankly, the whole space of measuring the impact of an athlete is like the wild, wild west. Nobody really knows. They've been doing the same thing, frankly, that has been happening in general sponsorship. They've been using social and digital tracking and then saying, oh, look, here's the value of that social post. Um, I mean, that's good. I mean, better than nothing, right? You need to give it a shot. Um, but we've been doing some research recently that suggests um, that uh, an athlete um, that isn't the, you know, it's not a Ben Roethlisberger or whatever, you know, it's not the, you know, top tier, you're about as well off maybe using, if you think about it across teams, um, you know, take the starting linebacker or whatever, take a player that everybody that loves that team knows, that may be just as effective as getting the star player because, Frankly, the star players, you think about the same thing on NIL, like with the Alabama QB that haven't even played a down. He's into a million bucks. Um, you know, uh, you don't have to necessarily spend that kind of money. Every Bama fan is going to know most of the rest of the players mm. and what will be the impact uh, for that individual player. And once they get so many different sponsors, then you get clutter. So, yeah. I mean, that's a big concern, right? So, and I think the lesson that I think will get learned is that less, maybe more. And that if you're sponsoring the, you know, the player, you know, the one or two marketable players and so are a bunch of other brands, good luck and fans recalling that that's player is endorsing that brand. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It might turn into a little bit of that. They'll end up looking like a NASCAR um, vehicle, just, you know, <laughs> Put on that. Well, plus the transition, right? So you don't have the advantage of um, that athlete staying with, you know, the club, if you will, for, well, more than four years. <laughs> um, well, some take on fifth and six years. Um, but still, uh, yeah, they're going to move on to another property, you know, NFL team, whatever it might be. So you don't even have that advantage, although I guess you could argue maybe it's about the same uh, as pro, te- pro players who tend to shift, you know, from one team to the next fairly freely yeah I, I think it's an interesting as you said it's the wild west and it's an interesting space whether they are looked at the athletes are looked at as um influencers as in like kind of like a social media influencer that has a brand and and the metrics around that is very much on all right how many followers do you have how much yeah, it's still eyeballs which is yeah eyeballs just, it totally misses the point right because um i used to say this in class years ago but um makes you think back in the like the basketball shoe uh, wars that I guess still continue um, but uh, haven't been in a Nike uh, wear for many years both running and uh, for basketball um, you know I could see a commercial for Reebok back in the day remember the old pumps <laughs> um, you know or for uh, Adidas or whatever it is but I might be dismissing it at the same time I'm hearing it mm. um, so it's actually called ad derogation 
basically saying bad stuff about the advertiser. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a measurable known fact that people basically talk back at their TV. You know, yep. when they see ads they don't like. So just saying, oh yeah, then this person had, and again, granted, they're maybe following that, uh, you know, that player, that athlete. It doesn't mean I necessarily like the brand. Then the other problem you get is that where it's fairly obvious that the brand is not really fitting with the um, the athletes endorsing them. We're seeing this in esports, some um, where brands are jumping in, trying to fit in, but they're not endemic to esports. The gamers don't like the brand that's jumping into their space. So yeah, it's not as easy as just counting, you know, eyeballs. Yeah, and that was the point I was going to make is um, around a. A sporting team, a franchise, it's not just valued on um, how many Instagram, Facebook, Twitter followers it has. Um, it's valued more as the brand equity goes deeper than that. Whereas influencers, individual influencers and you know, fashion influencers, wherever that is, Insta famous, um, that's much more around well, what are your metrics on these social platforms. So understanding the difference between the two and also trying to then separate out, as you said, the Alabama QB. Um, you know, he, if he transfers schools, he's not he's not worth that. He doesn't carry his. Yeah, I haven't thought, even thought about yeah the fact of the new transfer. So holy cow! I was still thinking on um, typically can be there for four years, but in, you know today, oh look, I didn't get my PT, and so now I'm in the transfer portal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, super interesting. I think the upshot of all that, both the NIL and athlete endorsements, is. Um, based on the research we've been doing is that you really need business intelligence that tells you like, I've got a couple of graphs I've been sharing with um, one of the clients we work with. There are, just think about any linear or any line you have, there are a bunch of athletes that are above the line that are performing well above the others. And there's some others that are below the line, if you will, they're underperforming um, even though they might have plenty of followers. Mm. You need business intelligence to tell you who's above the line and who's below the line. Um, yep. So at, right now, there's not much anything out there like that. It's just, oh, you have more followers and you must, you know, we'll pay you more. Well, that's uh, unwise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. And uh, you mentioned the, the series you've written on Forbes and we can include that in the um, show notes for the episode. But when it comes to sponsorship, are all fans created equal? Uh, are certain groups of fans more valuable than others, either by geography or by yeah. uh, social group, demographics, whatever else? Yeah, that study that YouGov conducted is outstanding. Um, the sample sizes are huge. I mean, so it's um, about roughly 5,000, a sample of 5,000 fans who watch most or nearly all of their favorite home team uh, across the three leagues that are, NBA, so not NFL, but NBA, NHL, and MLB. And then compared that to the general population on a bunch of different metrics that we have in those articles, um, you know, where the general population, you know, you've got tracks among almost up to 400,000 people. So it's extremely accurate. So what we find is that, yeah, that home team fan, I always remember what my buddy John Heike said. He used to be the general manager of Fox Sports Southwest. And he says what the regional sports networks have is the lean in factor. So you lean in to watch your team 
but you know, could also I think it also fits for the NCAA favorite team. You know, if you're, I mean, Longhorns and Bears fans aren't exactly in the most amicable position right now, but nonetheless, <laughs> if you're uh, one of those fans, you know, or you're following your favorite baseball or basketball or hockey team, you're leaning in the whole time. Yeah. Um, one of the examples I use in there, I borrow from golf, and you see it sometimes in the other sports, but the PGA Tour has done a great job of playing through where they've got, and you see some of this in the NFL, I've seen it some in uh, the other sports, but they have the actual, you know, the match is still going on on one side of the screen. Then they've got an ad going on at the same time, uh, basically, because you want to, you're tuned in, you want to watch that next putt or whatever, not miss any of the action. And at the same time, you're, you're watching the ad. So you've got that lean in factor that the home team fan, um, you know, is different from. Uh, frankly, just your general, you know, watching any broadcast, uh, you know, of other sports or just watching, you know, game of the week or whatever it might be, or maybe because you're a fantasy sports player and so you're watching for other reasons. Yeah, I mean, you see that in the Olympics. Like, the, I'm, I'm an Australian living in the US and I'll tune in for whatever Australian's doing. It doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, the swimming, which we, we excel at, or if it's, I don't know, obscure sport. They've got skateboarding in there. They've got... yeah. Um, if there's an Australian in there, I'm, I'm probably going to like pay attention and, and mm-hmm. cheer for them, as you said. And obviously, that's regional, but at a, at a national level, but it's still got that um, uh, kind of connection that you have. And, and same as um, same as at a college level, if, if UT's at something, I'll, I'll tune in and just have a look um, and kind of focus in on that. But yeah, um, yeah that's, that's certainly something interesting there. And maybe... Less of the fans you're going for, but the kind of the hate watching. <laughs> I think probably there's going to be a few Bears fans that, um, Baylor Bear fans, if Texas does end up going to the SEC, that'll tune into. <laughs> well, that gets into another research topic um, that my wife and I are working on. Uh, we've got quite a bit of data on this in sports and in politics and elsewhere, but Schadenfreude and yes. Glucksmerz. So, yep. in fact, she said the other day there's going to be a lot of Glucksmerz and schadenfreude going on the next you know year and my son said might i get some extra tickets this year because they're going to be in demand because so schadenfreude as you know when i um am glad when my rival uh, loses yeah it's taking it's taking pleasure from others pain essentially yeah, exactly and then glucksmerz is kind of the reverse way it's uh it's more I don't know, fail videos on the internet, seeing someone fall over and it's hilarious, stuff like that. But what yeah. was the Glucksmerz, both German words that we don't have American equivalents um, for. Um, but it's when uh, you're mad when your rival wins. So the first one is, is glad when they lose. And then Glucksmerz is I'm mad when they win. So let's say UT goes to the SEC, is that, I don't know if it's already been announced. But um, if for some reason other, let's say UT actually wins the SEC, you know, or gets the national championship, then those who are the rivals would be mad that they did, and that's Glucksmerz. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's kind of like the dark side of passion, which it's kind of funny. It's kind of uh, in the NFL, it's it's everyone cheering against the Patriots during yes. winning. Glad, yeah. glad uh, when yeah. they lose and mad when they win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um. But as you said, something that you can measure. It's it's all this human emotion that it's actually being able to quantify and measure that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's been really interesting. Thank you for, for kind of outlining that and 
So, um, as you said, the differences between brand impact versus just eyeballs and kind of the evolution of that, that it does work. Sponsorship does work. Sports sponsorship does work. So brands and especially sports teams and leagues shouldn't be afraid of actually delving in and understanding it more. Um, you know, it's one of those things you don't want to look under the rock because you don't want to know is know what's under there, but actually it's really valuable. But now we do, and one other thing to add to what Thomas is, we have a database now of almost 400 brands and across 30 some odd teams and, you know, over two years of data, you know, over 200,000, you know, fans that we've surveyed. And guess what? We have the evidence that it works. Yeah. And we can show how, um, you know, a title deal for Austin FC compares to title deals and other deals across the other country and compared to their category. In fact, I saw something the other day, I was preparing for another client of ours, uh, looking at a title deal. And I'll just give you this one little tidbit that the title deals that we've measured, which is um, dozens, um, their amount, their lift that they get uh, on the people they reach and effectively reach and then get lift on their brand is like five times the effect that it is if you don't have a title deal. So you could be an anchor sponsor, spend seven figures, but a title deal gives you like five times the effect of the reach across all of your assets uh, and on the brand list. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's, that's pretty much all the time we've got uh, yeah. today. So I just want to ask you the final question that we ask all our guests, which is what is your favorite sporting moment of all time? Um, got a number because I've been to more games and more places than I can count. But the one that probably sticks in my mind still um, is RG3 uh, completing the pass to Williams beat Oklahoma uh, in the last seconds, um, you know, what, probably a dozen years ago, however long it's been. Yeah. Um, so that was there in the elation that comes from that. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's it. They say you feel more immortal following a big win and an emotional moment like that. Some research shows that you feel like death is further away. Yeah, that's how later you are. <laughs> that's I mean, Robert Griffin, Robert Griffin the third, obviously incredible college athlete, didn't quite translate that in. Yeah, not so much in the at, um, at Washington, and then kind of found a home with Baltimore and doing stuff. Um, but yeah, I think he's gonna be an analyst perhaps soon. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that's the next thing. I mean, if you're a if you're a Texas football fan, you're probably feeling pretty close to death. Um, if that is true about elation pushing away, <laughs> that's we'll take the wins where we can get them. And if that means getting into the SEC, if that's a win, that's that's what it is. Um, okay. I've had a lot of success lately, and obviously the the basketball last year. Um, sorry, this year feels like last yeah. Year. Maybe I should say that's right up there. We were there, and we were definitely elated. But the difference there is, since we dominated the whole game and frankly the whole tournament, it was fun. And it was a lot of excitement. There's not quite the same as that last second yeah. you know, winning shot, winning pass, winning whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the endorphin rush from that. So, all right. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's one to, to look up and, and looking forward to the coming football uh, season and also staying in touch with everything that you're doing with, um, with S3 and Wakefield uh, Research Partners. So thanks again thanks much, Thomas. Uh, for, having us, for having you on the show. Yeah. Farewell, my friend. That was Dr. Kirk Wakefield, Chief Research Officer at Wakefield Research Partners. Great to have him on the show. 
And thanks to you for listening. Uh, as I said, sportstechworldseries.com forward slash podcast. Go back through, have a listen to some of our previous episodes. We've got a great lineup over the last year and a half now. So there's, there's a lot of episodes there to sink your teeth into. So go back through and have a listen. And feel free, as I said, to link, reach out on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter. Until next time, you've been listening to Sports Tech Feed. Ah!